0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. Tonight, we are talking about the second book in season seven, which is 1983,
1: the Newberry honor book, Graven Images by Paul Fleischman. The original publication of the book in 1982 had art by Andrew Glass- but it was reprinted, I believe, in two thousand six, and the illustrations in that edition were for by Bagram Ebatulin.
0: Really? Mhm. I have different cover art, but I have the
1: um, Andrew Glass illustrations on the interior. I I definitely have the Andrew Glass illustrations on mine, and I also have a citation, and this is from the Kirkus Review, and I'm going to actually take out a little bit of the middle so that we won't be spoiling the stories until we actually talk about them. Marcy and I talk about them from the author of the half a moon Inn*, three polished tales set in the past and told with dexterous application of old genre techniques. Fleischman establishes a storyteller's hold on his audience. They can put themselves in his hands with the assurance that they won't be disappointed and that all the surprises will be well within the established conventions. That sounds boring. It does have descriptions of each of the three stories, but I didn't want to give them away because we're going to talk about them.
0: I know, but it's like,
1: there's three stories, but you won't be surprised.
0: I, I actually,
1: <laughs> but that's, I disagree with this because I, okay, I wasn't surprised maybe at the outcomes necessarily necessarily. But I was really taken by the way the stories were told. So Graven Images is a collection of three stories, and the three stories are The Binnacle Boy, St. Crispin's Follower, and The Man of Influence. And I've read Paul Fleischman before. I love his stuff, but I was really, really, really taken aback by how magnificent this collection is. What did you think about it, Marcy?
0: I don't know if I would say magnificent but it was interesting the Paul Fleischman that I've read before is his other Newberry book which is Joyful Noise a poem or poems for two voices which I rave about to anybody and everybody that one is a collection of of poems insect themed and meant to be read aloud between two people so that the cadence of your voices reflects a characteristic of the bug and it's funny and it is joyful. And so like this is such a differently toned book that I kind of was taken aback because I didn't know what to expect. I, I did enjoy the turns that the story took at each end. Like there's a twist that's, you know, the twist is coming because of the kind of book it is, but you don't necessarily know what it is. And that's enjoyable. But I don't, I don't know if I would say magnificent.
1: I, I'm i sticking with that. I'm sticking with magnificent. <laughs> I mean I'm a sucker for anything that's like horror, suspense, fantasy. If we can say that that's a genre unto itself, but I don't I don't think we can necessarily. I think that you probably have to separate them when we're we're talking nuts and bolts in in actual in actual terms. Anyway, I'm a sucker for this type of thing. And these stories were told some of the I guess the The morals of the story, like the moral of the story for each of them maybe wasn't surprising, but the way they were told was really interesting to me. So the first book, the first story is called The Binnacle Boy. The Binnacle Boy is a life-sized carving of a, sorry, a life-sized carving of a sailor boy holding the iron binnacle and it houses the ship's compass so this this woman Miss Fry is looking out the window. That's the beginning of the the story. She's looking out the window she's waiting on her her young cleaning girl to show up. Her cleaning girl's sister shows up instead and the the sister tells Miss Fry that the ship has come in, the Orion, a ship has come in and everyone on board has died. So she's totally surprised and it seems
0: upset, but you're not really sure. It's a little ambiguous. And neighbor ladies from the town come, like, kind of on the daily to keep her company because her son, her adopted son, was one of the crew of this ship and died. And some other of the ladies in town had the same situation and they would come ostensibly to keep her company, but Mostly because they were curious and nosy, and as it turns out, the the cleaning girl's sister is deaf and can read lips, and they had the town had taken this binnacle boy statue, and and placed him in a place in town where he could be seen from Miss Fry's window, and people over time started to come and tell. Like their secrets into the ears of the binnacle boy, because he, you know, it's a statue; he can't tell anybody. But Miss Fry's little serving girl could read lips, and so the the nosy town ladies came over, really, to get her to sit at the window and and eavesdrop on the secrets of the people in town.
1: So these busybody ladies, including Miss Fry, start getting Takoa, the the little girl. To read read lips and find out the town's secrets, as Marcy just said.
0: <laughs> and, they, and they kind of solve their consciences by saying, okay, you can you can do the read lips, but do not tell us who told the secret. It's kind of their way of eavesdropping without feeling guilty for doing something wrong. Like they're hearing the secrets, but since they don't know who told the secrets, like nothing is going
1: wrong. Well, according to them. I mean, that's their like the, yeah, the rationale. Yeah. But so Takoa like tells the ladies that there's no like one woman didn't put any money in the collection plate at church and only rattled the coins. <laughs> yeah. And like I think there's some secret assignations going on. But the real secrets are all about the Orion, right? Somebody comes and says they
0: know why the crew died or then they come a different day and say the tea was poisoned and everybody's so shocked and they're like, we have to find out. We have to do this as a service to the town. The whole reason that Sarah didn't come and clean and why Sekoa had to come instead is because she was bedridden because her jaw would not open. Like she couldn't open her mouth. And the kind of background problem to that turns out that she was keeping a secret that was so bad that she couldn't talk to normal people and she was just coming to whisper to the binnacle boy and she's the one who knew what was up with the orion and the fact that the tea was poisoned and killed the crew but she also knew who did it and so she gets blamed for it and the nosy ladies kind of tell everybody and run after her and she runs up to a cliff and flings herself off the cliff and drowns and so everybody assumes that Sarah is the one who poisoned the tea but it's not true she overheard Miss Fry and at the very very end of the story Miss Fry goes and whispers to the binnacle boy that Sarah must have seen her poison the tea because she had raised her stepson her adopted son to be this paragon because her natural sons had had run off to become sailors and come to drunken bad ends so she raised him to be perfect and he was about to leave to go out to sea and so she poisoned him and she tells this to the binnacle boy. And then at the very, 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 very end of the story, you see Takoa turning away from the window because Takoa has seen this happen and read that on Miss Fry's lips. And so she does know the secret and it's out.
1: I mean, I thought it was very dastardly. I thought it was like a really great twist. And I think if I had been... You know, I had read this as a kid. I would have been totally scandalized. I would have been like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally, totally.
0: I'm, I just have
1: a couple small sort of just like
0: logic questions. Like, is a binnacle boy a normal thing? Like, I have never heard of a ship whose compass was housed in a statue, a wooden statue of a sailor boy. That seems weird.
1: I think right? that I think that is a normal th- or it was a normal thing at one point. And I think it. I mean, I think they had different forms. Because one, it just seems a little creepy. But two, like I've just never even seen or heard of such a thing. So a binnacle is a housing for a compass, right? For a ship's right. compass. Like that is, normal. and so I think, yeah. So I think that that is. I think that was a creepy twist that Paul Fleischman gave it. That it was a, it was the shape of a boy, or the shape of a human, and thus would make the townsfolk feel like they were almost like confessing to a benevolent human figure. When they were telling their secrets. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I get that as a literary device, but like as a logical leap, it's a little weird because like it's just so off-putting to have this like wooden statue of a boy. And maybe I feel like that because instead of the original illustrations, my book has this cover, which in retrospect, now that I've read it, I see that it is the statue of the Binnacle Boy. And it's just, it's just creepy In a vague way. Like it has kind of a strawberry girl like idealized sunny afternoon scene. But the statue has like these staring blue eyes. And at the ankles like it's like muddy kind of. And it's holding this random white thing that looks a little bit like a space helmet. But clearly is
1: supposed to be the binnacle. I just it's creepy and weird. I only have the the image inside of a woman grasping the binnacle boy's upper arm and whispering in his ear. And we encountered this illustrator when we did, was it the Three Wishes? Uh, Coventry, yeah. Yeah. It's not my favorite style. The shading often makes people's faces look bruised. And usually there's the expressions are often they look pained, like the the figures look pained or upset. So it's not my favorite illustration style, but I am curious to see what you're talking about. I do think that having a figure on a ship is not that odd. Like you think about there being like that carved, like a carved woman on the very front, you know, that kind of idea of having like a a physical embodiment of the spirit of the ship aboard.
0: No, that makes so, total sense. But this picture does not make sense.
1: That sounds like a weird bloody scarecrow. And I, Yeah, it, I'm not sure. It looks like a real boy, but not... I'm, hang on one
0: second. I'm going to text it to you
1: because I can't find it online. But I think as a literary device, like, it does work not only to give it, like, a face and find, make that really interesting, but also... The idea that this one wooden figure of a boy is the only boy that survived on on the ship.
0: Yeah, I think if my cover looked different, I would. I probably would agree with you.
1: Oh, I don't like. I don't like what you I don't like that at all. I know. That cover right. It's so that's my weird. mental image. It actually looks like. It looks like in the Simpsons when they have fake book covers. <laughs> <sighs> like it really looks like a fake joke book cover. Yeah. And
0: I have no idea who drew it. No, there's no credit given. This is the first scholastic paperback printing.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know who did that, but it really does look like a fake Simpsons book cover.
0: Anyway, so that's kind of throwing off my whole mental image of the whole
1: first story because that's what I'm imagining. Yeah. I mean, if you can, I think maybe try to push that out of your head and just think of it as like a, just a statue, right? Yeah. And I think that that's that was the whole that's the whole like it's like it's like poetic right like all the all these boys from the town died but this one wooden boy is left standing and then the one wooden boy is put in the middle of the town square to like comfort people which i don't i don't get but it also becomes this like um like a confessional yeah So I I do think, I think that it maybe doesn't logical, but I think it makes a certain amount of story sense. Well, and the other thing that bugs me is sort of the timeline, right? So it says when
0: the Brig Orion, three weeks out from Havana, appeared off her home port of New Bethany, Maine, and that is when they go out to meet it and realize that everybody there has died. And that makes a lot of, like, storytelling sense. But if she poisoned their tea, the odds of that happening just as they come floating into home port make no
1: sense. Well, you also I, – I think I took it as they never made it to Havana necessarily. Like, they actually were poisoned pretty soon after they left, and then their boat was just kind of – finally washed back but how would that happen coming into home port I, I mean I don't know like I was just I was taking it as like they never really made the voyage and maybe it maybe it took them a while to get to that tin of tea or something like I think I just made it like make sense in my head mm. you know so that I could be like so I could build the story in my head yeah it, it just bugs me <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that's not super logical, but I was along for the ride. So I just made it make sense in my head.
0: It's just there's some things that sort of disrupt your suspension of disbelief. And that's just like one of them. It's like when when it appeared three weeks out from Havana, you know, up to the home port and everybody was dead on board. Like there's in a storytelling way, it's fun. But if it doesn't logically make sense, it kind of throws me off.
1: I guess. I mean, I think I'm... I think I'm more on the side of like if it if it doesn't bug me, then it's just something I just get swept away in it and it does you know, I don't I don't think about it. It would have been enjoyable had that happened. However. Well well, it did for me and I really loved this story because it felt like a new way of of being a a new way of telling people one to mind their own business and two (laughs) to not trust creepy old ladies and maybe don't go to sea with a creepy pinnacle boy. That's true. That's true. My only other question about this too was
0: that her normal cleaning girl was named Sarah and then her sister is
1: Tikoa. Like that's a weird disparity of names. Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean no, because I feel like that's kind of a conventional thing that happens, right? Like either either the firstborn has got a very unique name and or a plain name. And then like either parents run out of creative names and then the kids' names start getting more and more plain or they're like, this could be our last kid. Let's give it the weird name that we really wanted to give our first one, but we're afraid to.
0: Maybe. I mean, I Googled it and apparently that name is primarily a boy's name in Hebrew or of Hebrew origin. That means trumpet. So the thing that I thought of was that maybe like...
1: she's going to trumpet the truth. Well, that, and also, I mean, Sarah's a Hebrew name too, so they do go together in that way.
0: Clearly a little disagreement on the first story. What about St. Crispin's
1: Follower? So St. Crispin's Follower is about a shoemaker's apprentice, his fledgling apprentice named Nicholas, and he is learning the craft of shoemaking. He also is... I don't know, want to follow the direction of this weird weather vane they have on top of the shop. <laughs> yeah, so St. Crispin is is
0: truly the saint, the patron saint of shoemakers, but at some point this weather vane broke. And instead of blowing the direction that the wind is blowing, it blows kind of like one way and gets stuck and then blows another way and gets stuck. And he gets this sort of superstitious thing happening where he thinks that the weather vane is pointing him personally in the direction that he needs to go for his life.
1: Yeah. So he, he actually will, you know, needs to make a choice or he is wanting to do something in his life and he'll go outside and see where the weather vane is pointing and he'll just walk in that direction until he can anymore. And for the purposes of the story, it actually works out well. But... I can imagine like there are other times if you (laughs) – there are other times in his (laughs) life when he did that and he just like ended up in like a pile of trash or like falling into the river or –
0: It's like, why am I at the harbor at
1: midnight? Yeah. Yeah. It's just – It's not great. That's pretty comical. He's in love with a girl that works at Miss Catchfly's Grocery and Miss Catchfly is a mean old lady, meaner than Miss Fry. Yes. But she didn't. She hasn't poisoned anyone, so maybe she's not meaner. She's just more crotchety. And apparently, she has a beautiful foot. Well, according to Mister Quince, the uh, actual shoemaker, yes, he, the actual shoemaker, Mister Quince, has been in love with Miss Catchfly for a really long time. He likes a saucy lady <laughs> with a nice foot. So. <laughs> But Nicholas being the fledgling apprentice has to do extra errands. He doesn't just learn the the you know, the skill of shoemaking. He has to go to the grocery store and like pick up extra items here and there. And he goes into the grocery store and Juliana is the shop girl who works there. She's wearing some honeysuckle on her bodice. And he takes that as a sign because there's the language of flowers. He takes it as a sign for, uh, it, I guess honeysuckle means yearning. Or like uh, unbounded affection. Yeah. And so he, he like, Leaves there and he rushes to the bookstore and looks up in like the flower dictionary what it means and he has to try to figure out how he wants to respond. But meanwhile, Juliana was thinking, was just happened to have that on her and she was thinking about this other guy in town. So Nicholas is just like pining away and trying to figure out his flower language.
0: Also, she accidentally gives him one extra nutmeg in the order of nutmegs and he takes that as she defied Miss Catchfly, and she could be in so much trouble if she found out and this is like this sign of her total affection for me and he has this nutmeg that he keeps taking out of his pocket and looking at and just like swooning over it's kind of enjoyable how ridiculous it is
1: how many who needs that much nutmeg i mean he was
0: getting like six a dozen nutmegs I'll tell you have you have you ever cooked for raff because my husband loves nutmeg more than anybody I've ever met if I gave him an extra nutmeg he probably would go off the bend the way this kid did
1: Yeah but like I feel like it's like cinnamon right where you you need it like you use it but like you don't need to use whole pods of it like pods and pods and pods of it right like yeah, We have a special nutmeg grinder Okay. So I stand corrected. (laughs)
0: No, there's like, I've, one time I made carrot soup and I put nutmeg in, I put too much in. I couldn't even eat it. It was so nutmeggy. And he was just like, yes, this is perfect. He still talks about that. Like it was like six years ago.
1: So it was nutmeg soup. It was nutmeg soup with a little bit of carrot. Okay, so maybe I'm, I'm, you know, I'm confusing it a little <laughs> bit because I was thinking like, oh, it's like, you know, because it is like a cinnamon cinnamony, like Christmassy type spice to me for a normal like, person, like, yeah. and like and like Thanksgivingy, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, dude, Nicholas is like Nicholas is going nuts about this nutmeg, this extra nutmeg, and he he decides that he's gonna. He just tries to figure out which flower he's going to use and then he's like, "Okay, I'm going to use verbena." Which I love verbena. It's an excellent summer annual, but
0: he he picks it and it's it's whole ordeal like he has to follow the weather vane to find some verbena. And he finally finds it and picks it and he's in such a rush and things happen and when he meets her again, when he meets Juliana again, like the leaves have blown off so he's convinced that she's mistaken it for something that means Something totally different and
1: and mean, right? Like But this scene I thought was incredible, right? So Paul Fleischman is writing this story of this like kind of, you know, love struck dimwit, you know. I mean, I don't know, love kind of can make you dumb, even if you're super smart sometimes. But I mean, like Nicholas is, you know, just really puppy, puppy love struck. And he has these like ripped up, like you know just shitty looking verbenas and he's like he comes up to he comes up to juliana to give them to her and he he doesn't understand that behind him is the guy that she was originally thinking about basically her ex yeah and he is she's watching this whole drama with her ex play out and not even paying attention to nicholas so when she looks disappointed it's about her ex. It has nothing to do with the verbena. He, like, she's not even really aware that he's in front of her. But he, like, scuttles away. Shame. <laughs> And he's so upset, and he looks it up in the book, and he's like, "Oh my God, no!
0: That means that means vicious accusation or something like that, you know." And he's just horrified, and she just has no clue what's happening. It's it's really
1: an enjoyable thing to read. I hate to say. <laughs> well, it's that perspectives that I feel like Paul Fleischman pulls it off so well. Like you can see it happening, and you can understand what's happening so clearly. And, but there's not a picture for it. And like, I just, I think that's incredible, incredible writing and storytelling. Yeah. So the
0: upshot is basically that he has a shoe that she's supposed to pick up and he writes a note, this loved Lauren, like, I see you as a goddess, please meet me, kind of a note and stuffs it in this shoe. He does put in there that she has a perfect foot. He does. He does. But he gets stuck doing a task. He had made a pair of shoes badly and is stuck fixing it when he is supposed to go out to this celebration that everybody is supposed to have off as a holiday where he told in the note that
1: he was going to meet this person. And when he comes back... Dude, he didn't just... No, he didn't just make some shoes badly. He put... Tacks that were too long inside someone's shoe. Miss Catchfly. Miss so, Catchfly. So she, Miss Catchfly, is like put on these shoes. This is like a nightmare. Miss Catchfly has put on these shoes, and her feet have just been like poked by these horrible nails. So he has to redo it. Right, rightly so. Yeah, because she comes back and rips this. them a new one. And I'm like, yes, Miss Catchfly. If I had pokey shoes like that, I probably would be pretty mad too. Nails in my feet? Yeah, I would be like. I would be so angry and hobbled.
0: But he comes down from fixing them, realizes the shoes that Juliana were supposed to pick up are gone. The note is gone. And he's horrified because she's going to be waiting for him and he's not going to be there. But he goes out. He follows the weather vane, which points him in a totally weird direction. He goes and goes and goes and goes. And finally, he actually does run into Juliana, who has no idea what he's talking about. So he turns around and sees Miss Catchfly with his boss, the shoemaker, and realizes that Miss Catchfly got the shoes, got the note, thinks that it's from the shoemaker. The shoemaker is actually in love with her, and everything worked out very nicely for them. But it's not at all what he intended.
1: I mean, I was like, yeah, awesome. (laughs) Like she gets good shoes he gets the love of his life with the perfect feet i was like you go middle-aged people it's very clueless it is it is it has that emma and clueless quality
0: i mean like when they fix up the teachers you know and everybody yeah. benefits because like the, everybody who's been ma- angry and giving him bad grades is all of a sudden in a good mood like i feel like oh, it, yeah it really yeah. does work out for everybody definitely I feel like the third one combines both the things nicely. So the third story is called The Man of Influence. And there's a sculptor who is kind of a snob. Like, he was born into a very working-class quarry family, but he became a sculptor, and he's very proud of the fact that he works for, like, these famous influential patrons, but he has no work, and so he and his wife are getting to the point where he's going to have to go back to the quarry and work if he can't get a new commission, but nobody's really doing that right now. And even if they were, like, he's got this attitude of, like, are you worthy? Are you influential? Like, are you worth my time? Uh, which is kind of like when you're reading it, you don't like him very much because, you know, no matter how good his work is, he's just kind of being a, a jerk.
1: Well, I thought, I thought, yeah, I didn't like him as, as a person. I thought his character was really interesting. Oh, yes. <laughs> I always find it very interesting. I think you can say that for all three of these stories, there are fools at the core of them and they're different types of fools. So you know, Miss Fry is a fool to think that no one would ever know her secret and that she got away with it, right? Mm -hmm. Nicholas is a fool for love. And then Zorelli is like, is a self-important fool. Like he thinks he's, he's got hubris, right? Like he's like this overwhelming sense of pride. Like he's like, I am the best sculptor and no one understands and i just i think that's so interesting to take that kind of character the the lad the last character and put it into put that character into the the profession of being a sculptor and something that's so when you think about it you have to be kind of gregarious to do because it's so it's so manual you know it's like you and you're working with so many different materials that are so heavy and i don't know it's so funny to me that he would be a snob <laughs> I, I, I can his, see to his, it to his to his detriment, right?
0: Yeah. Well, it's so. The interesting thing is that it, during the course of the story and his internal narrative, as he's he's going through crowds in the marketplace, thinking he's better than everybody, and I've sculpted your mayor, and I've sculpted, you know, this person and that, and this famous person's son, his tomb who died, and he would have ruled the city or whatever, and it all comes into play later, which I think you're right, like proves that it's very well written the way that it turns out. But he's approached by a ghost. And the ghost is in tatters and he doesn't look impressive. (laughs) The fact that it's a ghost is like nothing, but the fact that he's wearing like tatters and looks disreputable is enough to throw this guy. And he's missing an ear. Yeah, yeah. And so like all these things he's like totally disregarding the fact that this is a crazy supernatural event. He's like, do you have money? Are you influential? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the fact that he's a ghost, but the ghost wants to commission a sculpture. And finally he agrees and he makes some sketches and he starts working on the sculpture and he gets instructions for where to deliver it. And he finally does. And he is directed to load it on a cart and take it out to the edge of town and then tip it out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it turns out that this ghost is the ghost of an assassin who was hired by these righteous, upstanding pillars of the community who he who the artist had already sculpted and who he was so like proud of having sculpted. But they secretly were spy masters and people who had commissioned having their relatives killed to retain their power and this particular sculpture was of the like the killer poisoning a baby who would have inherited
1: pretty much the rule of the city where he lives in Italy. This apparition wants the, wants a statue that tells this horrible secret he wants it to be placed in a central location. And the ghost also starts to just tell Zarelli all of these horrible secrets about these families that he holds in such high regard and like aligns himself with ideologically or, or, and, and thinks that he's so special because he's done work for them. He learns that there are horrible, horrible people who hired this guy who is now a ghost, who's done these horrible things. And that's such a gotcha twist. (laughs) Well, like, I thought, like, there's these little sweet notes in all the
0: stories, right? Like, the reason that this guy, the ghost, wants his sculpture done is because he used to confess all his crimes to his cat. And the person who hired him to do his worst jobs and had him murdered so that he wouldn't tell – had him killed before he could get home and tell his cat what he did because that's the only way he could sleep is if he did that so the sculpture is of him doing this terrible deed but looking down at his cat who's looking up at him so that he can in a way tell his cat what he did and hopefully get some real rest in the
1: afterlife some eternal rest
0: yeah and it's like that is such a sweet little thing like Yes, this is a horrible assassin who did awful things and killed a baby amongst many other really terrible crimes, but he cannot rest for a night or for eternity unless he confesses to his cat. Like that is such like an interesting depth to this character and to the story that like that's what struck me the most.
1: Yeah, that that is like a, such a such an interesting note to throw in there because it makes it makes the uh it makes the scary, creepy, gross ghost that you find out is an assassin <laughs> really and a murderer of children, it makes him – it gives him some human qualities and some qualities that you can relate to. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really an interesting trick of Fleischmann's as well because – then you're you're having this little like sympathy pang for this horrible horrible person who's now a horrible ghost because I mean honestly well not a horrible ghost he's good at being a ghost but he's he's exacting revenge in a way that's so bitchy and is so amazing yeah no it's it's so well done like the third
0: story I think is like the pièce de résistance of this book like I know that there's. There's unifying themes in terms of these all focus on, you know, literally engraven images. so the works of art, secrets and the
1: supernatural and like these twists and murders and stuff. There's also the it's maybe subtle and not subtle, but I don't think it's like to the forefront. but I would say the first stories got got wood as an element. The second story has leather, and the third story has stone. And that's really interesting to to think about how each of those textures and mediums are used and presented in those, in those stories as well.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's the whole thing is very interesting and you could come up with lots of different themes and different like ideas that relate all three stories. There's not like a specific, Hey, these are about the same family or the same region or anything like that, but they do fit together nicely. And they're interesting, which I think is key because a lot of times you get an assemblage of stories and you're like, yeah, I get how these fit together, but it's kind of
1: boring, which is not the case here. I think they also, they do a great job of having themes that you see in other stories for children and and bringing them into new into kind of a new context or a new circle Mm -hmm. of stories. Because I think there's all, there's a lot of stuff in here about like, be careful who you trust, you know, find out who you're working for before you do a job. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, just be careful of the assumptions that you make. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of like moralizing in these, just like there are in a lot of stories for young children or younger children. But I find it I find the treatment and the delivery, the execution to be so refreshing and so interesting. And I yeah, I was just super surprised because it's not a big book and So it's, it's actually very short. And I'd never really heard anything about it before. And so I was so surprised to like start reading it and be swept away so
0: Well, and so what's interesting to me too is that the author this is one of the only people But I think this is the only person I've actually heard this about. But his dad also won a Newbery, right? So he won this Newbery honor in 1983. Then he won the medal in 1989, which was only two years after his father, Sid Fleischman, won it for the whipping boy. And I don't think there's ever been an occasion where two, like, directly related people both won the Newbery
1: or even honors. I think there might be a Cal like that. Really? I'm not but as I familiar with the
0: Caldecott's, I have to say. Although I think he
1: also, he, either he or his father, I think were a Caldecott honor. I could be wrong. So Jerry Pinkney and Brian Pinckney have done that with Caldecott. Ah.
0: But also, like, this book and Joyful Noise and The Whipping Boy are such, like different books like even within the same family it's it's interesting to me like you kind of think of like okay like I could imagine if Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter Rose had done a book in the same vein if she didn't write Laura's books which is a whole thing but like I could see her like also winning honors and that would make sense because they're kind of about the same topic because they had the same life because they lived together but these books are totally different even you know, Father to
1: Son, but also Joyful Noise and this book, totally, totally different. I agree with you to a certain degree um, because I I think that, but I think within each of their careers, there's been so many varied types of books, Mm -hmm. you know, by themselves. And then if you look across like both careers, but I do think that one thing that carries through in almost all of them is a sense of humor that's really really solid and really enjoyable yeah because Sid Fleischman did a couple of biographies in particular his biography of Harry Houdini and his biography of Mark Twain and they're both I mean for biographies they're really funny but just in general they're really really witty and amazing
0: I would be ashamed of anybody who was the biographer of Mark Twain and not like smart and funny
1: yeah, but I feel like people have done that and they had, haven't gotten – like I feel like he got what makes Mark Twain funny and he was able to almost – like kind of emulate it in the body of the biography, which I think is, is something that is only a skilled humorist could really do. Yeah. You know, and so I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a lot of bad Mark Twain biographies <laughs> out there. Um, But I do want to say that I think – in, in terms of legacy, I think this makes Sid Fleischman and Paul Fleischman for Newberry, and then Jerry Pinkney and Brian Pinkney for Caldecott the Marie and Irene Curies. Very of nice, the kid lit worlds. Yeah, <laughs>
0: very nice. Yeah, but I don't disagree. I don't, and I, I'm you know proud of them in a way because to to create three different books of three different like directions. You know what I mean? In in the Newberry world is impressive and it's a really good family legacy.
1: Yeah, I mean it's very well deserved.
0: Marcy, do you have read-alikes for this? I do. So this probably is obvious, but the illustrator, Andrew Glass, also illustrated a book that we have already reviewed called The Wish Giver. And it's funny because the cover of my book does not reveal that at all. And so I had no idea going into this that that was the case. But when I was reading them, I was very strongly reminded of the stories in The Wish Giver, which are also... Like slightly off-putting, not slightly off-putting, slightly eerie tales of the supernatural and things happening in small towns. And it just seemed very reminiscent. So by the time I got to the interior illustrations, I was like, oh my God, yes, this is so reminiscent. And to have the same illustrator would just really reinforce that. So I think that that would probably be one of my strongest recommendations. My other one would just be because of St. Crispin's Follower, I just got the smidgiest hint of reminiscence of Stardust by Neil Gaiman just because there's a shop boy it's a small town there's this like lovelorn, love Lauren, soppy you know kid who has this infatuation with somebody who has no idea he's alive and so like the the rest of the story is totally different but like that was the one little tone that hit the same note for me.
1: My first read-alike is The Dark Thirty, Southern Tales of the Supernatural by Patricia C. McKissick and illustrated by Brian Pinckney, who we've already talked about a little bit. And it is a story collection about the African-American experience in the South. It has tales about slavery, emancipation, activism. And it's got some really creepy stuff in it. And it really hits that wonderful spot that I love where history and horror meet. And so it's so incredible. This also was a Newberry Honor book. Yeah. So we and will cover other, that for sure. Yeah. And then the other uh, read alike I have is Gr- The Green Glass House by Kate Milford. Mm. And this, it's, it's, I guess a series, but I think some of the books are kind of like standalone. Um, And I've only read the first one. So it's a collection of stories, but they're embedded in this kind of main story. So there's this 12-year-old boy named Milo, and he is at this inn. It's called, it's like a creaky smuggler's inn, and he's the innkeeper's adopted son. And some of the, the guests there's events that happen. I don't want to give it away. Um, the guests start telling stories. And so it has that feel of a short story collection, but it's within a bigger narrative. Um, and there's some creepy, good stuff in there and really, really touching, interesting things in there as well. Um, so those are my two readalikes. likes. but I did love this I did love this book and I forgave it for any logical (laughs) missteps it might have taken
0: it's really only the first one that bugs me a little bit I would recommend this honestly like it's good for like a it's not even scary or or alarming
1: it's a short story with supernatural twists like I, I enjoyed it a lot thank you so much for listening to our episode where we spoke about Graven Images by Paul Fleischman Next episode, we'll be talking about Homesick, My Own Story by Gene Fritz in our continuation of the 1983 Newberry books. Please find us on our social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We also have our website at newberrytart.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Bye.
0: Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is NewberryTart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot